Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Today, we continue our journey through the 1980s Martin Scorsese cinematic universe with another underrated gem of his, 1983's The King of Comedy. And I'm thinking as I'm sitting here now, well, maybe this is my big break. This is my big chance. You know what I mean? You don't just walk on to a network show without experience. Now, I know it's an old hackneyed expression, but it happens to be the truth. You've got to start at the bottom. I know. That's where I am, at the bottom. That's a perfect place to start. So will you please give your warmest greetings to the newest king of comedy, Rupert Hopkins. His name is Rupert Pupkin. He lives in a world of make-believe. Oh, Jerry, I love this guy. Always coming up with these great lines. I love him. I love him. Nobody can remember his name. Mr. Pupkin. Mr. Pupnik. Mr. Puffer. Rupert. Pupkin. P-U-P-K-I-N. But by 11.30 tonight, the whole world will know that Rupert Pupkin is the new king of comedy. Robert De Niro. Jerry Lewis. In a Martin Scorsese picture, The King of Comedy. The story of The King of Comedy begins in the early 1970s when Newsweek film critic Paul D. Zimmerman decided to start writing a screenplay about the nature of fame after reading an article in Esquire magazine about a man who was obsessed with then Tonight Show host Johnny Carson. Zimmerman was intrigued by one specific passage in the article where the man talked about the diary he kept in which he would assess every single Tonight Show episode and how well or poorly he felt Carson did that evening. The story and tone of the screenplay would make a dramatic churn in late 1975, when not one, but two assassination attempts were made against then-President Gerald R. Ford in California, not 17 days apart. But in part Thanks to Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, released in February 1976, Zimmerman did not pursue a story where the protagonist tries to assassinate the target of his obsession, but stuck with the idea of a desperate man who makes a desperate move to get the fame he's desperate to have. When the screenplay started making the rounds in Los Angeles and New York, one filmmaker was rather taken with the story and would pick up the option on it. In late 1975, Milos Forman was one of the hottest directors on the planet, having just seen his film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest become a smash hit at the box office. A few months later, Cuckoo's Nest would become only the second film in Oscar history to have won the Big Five Awards, Picture, Director, Screenplay, Lead Actor, and Lead Actress. Forman could make any movie he wanted, and this was the movie he wanted to make. But after a year and a half, Foreman would walk away from the film, deciding to make a movie adaptation of the hit Broadway musical Hair instead. Another person who would come across the screenplay was actor Robert De Niro. He had originally read it in 1974, just after finishing production, on Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather Part Two, before winning his first Oscar, or starring in Taxi Driver. De Niro would bring the screenplay to his friend Martin Scorsese as something he thought the two men could work on down the line. Scorsese, who knew Zimmerman socially, liked the screenplay, 
But as he would tell an interviewer years later, he found it difficult at first to get excited about it. But at this point in their careers, neither Scorsese nor De Niro was in a place where they could start throwing money around to option screenplays they may not ever make. The screenplay would kind of sit in a limbo for a few years after Foreman let his option pass, until De Niro and Scorsese started talking about what they might do after they finished their next collaboration, Raging Bull, the subject of our next episode. Scorsese would recall at a special 30th anniversary screening of the movie at the 2013 Tribeca Film Festival that it wouldn't be until he had more hindsight about the problems of fame, both with himself and his friend Robert De Niro, he understood how to make it into a movie. De Niro would buy the rights in early 1979, and in May, Joanne Corelli, an associate producer on The Deer Hunter, would help sell licenses for the movie to nearly one-third of all international markets at that year's Cannes Film Festival, without the benefit of a director attached to the movie, simply on De Niro's name itself. With the connection between Corelli and Deer Hunter director Michael Cimino, he briefly considered directing the movie, but he would be too tied up with the post-production on Heaven's Gate to make the commitment. Bob Fosse, the director of Cabaret, Lenny, and All That Jazz, circled the film for a brief moment, but he wanted Andy Kaufman to play the lead role. While Fosse would end up deciding to make the Dorothy Stratton movie Star 80 instead, he would be instrumental in one significant part of the final production, as it was Fosse who would bring Sander Bernhardt to De Niro's attention as a potential Masha. For the role of talk show host Robert Langford, Fosse considered Sammy Davis Jr., the beloved entertainer who had guest-hosted The Tonight Show a few times. But his schedule at that time could not accommodate the shooting of a movie. In the summer of 1980, De Niro would bring Israeli producer and financier Arnon Milshan aboard as producer. The two had met years earlier when they discussed making a movie about Moshe Dayan, the one-time Israeli minister of defense, during the country's conflicts with Egypt. That film would not get made, but De Niro and Milchan would become friends, and Milchan happily accepted the actor's offer to help get the film made. It would be his first of more than 100 American productions, including Pretty Woman, JFK, Under Siege, Natural Born Killers, Heat, L.A. Confidential, Fight Club, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Gone Girl, The Revenant, and Ad Astra. Finally, in mid-1981, Scorsese committed to making the movie. While he and De Niro worked through the screenplay, the director made a list of who he thought should play Langford. His first choice was, naturally, Johnny Carson, who had only ever appeared in one movie to this point, the 1964 Connie Francis musical Looking for Love, where he would play himself. Carson was not an actor. He never pretended to be an actor, and he would very politely decline Scorsese's official offer to join the production. Other people Scorsese considered for the role included Joey Bishop, Dick Cavett, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, and Orson Welles, all who had spent considerable time either guest-hosting The Tonight Show or functioning as a host of some kind of variety show. But the only other person Scorsese would make an official offer to after Carson was comedy legend Jerry Lewis. 
By 1981, Jerry Lewis was not quite the star he had once been. After his disastrous 1970 comedy, Which Way to the Front, Lewis would not appear on movie screens for another 10 years, when his disastrous 1980 comedy, Hardly Working, opened and quickly closed in theaters. That, of course, does not include the time he spent making the still uncompleted 1972 Holocaust dramedy, The Day the Clown Cried. For many young people like myself in the 1970s, Jerry Lewis meant only one thing, the weird host of the annual muscular dystrophy telethons that aired every Labor Day weekend. He would film a movie in 1981, an adaptation of the Kurt Vonnegut novel Slapstick of Another Kind, but that disaster would not get an American theatrical release until 1984. De Niro, however, was not initially excited about working with Lewis. De Niro, as method and actor at the time as they came, wrote a letter to his friend and director expressing his concern that Lewis would not be able to deliver a credible, dramatic performance. Scorsese would counter that Lewis's experience as a Borchspelt and Catskills comedian and the pathos that lied within his manic comic film persona would help him understand and portray the angst of Langford better. For the role of Masha, Scorsese had someone else in mind besides Sandra Bernhard. The director had wanted to work with Meryl Streep for years, and she and De Niro had been looking to work together again after The Deer Hunter. Scorsese would offer her the role, but she would turn it down, citing a scheduling conflict with Sophie's Choice. Probably the better choice, all things considered. Bernhard, who was still a minor cult figure in New York entertainment circles, would book her first significant movie role after doing an uncredited voice in Shogun Assassin and a small role as Girl Nut in Cheech and Chong's Nice Dreams. To prepare for his role as Rupert Pupkin, De Niro studied hours of stand-up routines by one of America's funniest comedians, Richard Belzer, as well as a number of episodes of The Tonight Show with Steve Allen. He would also find his signature costume from a Manhattan clothing store that billed itself as the shirtmaker to the stars. In the front window on a mannequin, De Niro saw his character. A funky suit covered with multicolored circles, done up with a little red bow tie. The mannequin even had a little mustache like the one De Niro was growing for the movie. To him, it was a sign that he needed to buy the entire ensemble. Meanwhile, Lewis was working on his own character. The first thing he would ask Martin Scorsese was if it wouldn't be too much trouble, that uh, maybe they could change the name of the character from Robert Langford to Jerry Langford. Lewis figured, since they would be shooting on the streets of New York City, people would recognize him and call out his name, Jerry! Jerry! and that would lend to the authenticity of the character's popularity. Jerry would also talk Scorsese into letting his regular tailors create the clothes for Langford, even though the production already had a talented costume designer in Richard Bruno, who had already worked on such films as The Way We Were, Westworld, Chinatown, New York, New York, Heaven Can Wait, and Raging Bull. As pre-production continued, the King of Comedy team found themselves unexpectedly needing to rush the clock. Both the Writers Guild and the Directors Guild were threatening to strike if the Producers Guild didn't negotiate a new contract that also included provisions 
for the then relatively new and rapidly growing home video market. The strike date set by the DGA would fall right in the middle of production, and as Scorsese was a member of the union, he would not be allowed to work, effectively shutting the production down indefinitely until the matter was resolved. The major players in the movie, Scorsese, De Niro, and Milchan, decided to chance it, hoping the matter would be resolved before the strike date, which wasn't a probable outcome. You see, the previous year, a strike by 60,000 members of the Screen Actors Guild over the same issue lasted almost the entire summer, delaying the start of production on many of the fall television shows. Production would begin as scheduled on June 1st, and would last for two months uninterrupted, as the Directors Guild was able to come to an agreement with the Producers Guild over payments from the sales of videotapes and laserdiscs before the strike deadline. The Writers Guild, however, would go on strike for 13 weeks, although this would not affect the production all that much. Now, remember how earlier I mentioned that Scorsese was originally hesitant about making the movie because he wasn't all that passionate about it? He still had trouble directing the film because that lingering, why am I doing this, was still in the back of his head. He wanted to just get it done so he could take a break before diving into his next planned project. One he was very passionate about, his adaptation of Nikos Kazantzakis' The Last Temptation of Christ. But he did enjoy working with Jerry Lewis, who was helpful both in front of the camera and, for one scene, behind the camera. Now, if you've never seen The King of Comedy before, go ahead and pause the show now and get yourself onto almost every major streaming service like Amazon or Google Play or Vudu, where you can rent the movie in high def for $3.99 or buy it in HD for $9.99 because I'm about to spoil one of the better scenes in the movie. I'll wait. Okay, so while they're gone, let's talk about that scene on the street where Jerry gets stopped by a nice-looking woman talking to her nephew on the payphone. Morris, you will not believe who's coming down the hill. Jerry Langford, right? Right. Oh, Morris, please hold on. Jerry, would you please sign my order? Stop signing that magazine for me. Yeah. You're just wonderful. I've watched you your entire career. A joy to the world. Please, Morris, would you just please say something to my nephew Morris on the phone? He's in the hospital. I'm and sorry, I'm late. You should only get cancer. I hope you get cancer. It's one of the more memorable scenes in the movie, and it was something Jerry came up with. Well, more specifically, it's something that happened to Jerry years earlier. He was just entertaining the crew between takes with stories about his life as a, an icon, and Scorsese loved this particular story. He thought it would be a great moment in the movie. So Scorsese found a moment in the shooting schedule and asked Lewis, if he would be so kind as to set up and effectively direct the scene. The whole scene is about a minute and a half long. It has four edits, including a stealth one, to get to a better secondary shot, a tracking shot with a camera on a hood of a taxi, and some footage of Lewis walking down the street. In one shot, a group of construction workers taking a break start to call out to him as they applaud, Jerry! Jerry! He was right about changing the character's name all along. That was a real thing that happened with the construction workers, completely unplanned, and it helped the movie create a real sense of aura around Langford, 
And it was all improvised because the writer's strike was still going on. Uh, okay, are the people who stopped to watch the movie back? Good. We, we can talk freely again. And it's a great movie, right? Anyway, it was this overall ability to improvise that made the film as tolerable to Scorsese as making it was. De Niro would constantly pester Lewis with inappropriate comments just before cameras were to roll during certain scenes to amplify Langford's antipathy and anger towards Pupkin. When the actor playing Lewis's servant had an issue getting the front door open during one take of a scene, Lewis, never breaking character, would hurl an insult at the actor playing the servant, and he just kept going on. And it would be the take Scorsese would use in the movie. And the scene between Masha and Jerry, when she's got him heavily duct-taped in a chair and tries to seduce the talk show host she's obsessed with? Outside of the blocking and how the scene needed to end, Bernhardt had complete freedom to do whatever she wanted, and Lewis was free to react however he wanted. Except for how the scene ends. I'm not going to tell you what it entailed, because what Lewis wanted to do frankly sounds extremely misogynistic, even if the character could quantify it as being a justified move. But the scene is still seven minutes of cinematic gold, putting the viewer in true and honest fear of what might happen by the end of the scene. Production ended at the end of August to the relief of Scorsese, who found himself getting sick again towards the end of filming. Scorsese was still suffering some after-effects of his extended hospital stay in 1978 due to exhaustion and pneumonia, and he could only direct a few hours each day. He would take a rare break once shooting was completed, allowing his editor, Thelma Schumacher, time to create her own first cut of the film. He would return to the movie after the first of the year feeling a bit better. They would work together on editing the film for several months, jeopardizing Fox's planned late 1982 awards eligibility release. Finally, in mid-September 1982, Fox would announce the film was being pushed back to an unspecified date in 1983, ostensibly for the chance for Scorsese to do some reshoots, and to better prepare marketing for the film's soundtrack. But I cannot find any reports of reshoots happening for the film in the fall or winter of 1982. Finally, a mid-February 1983 release was announced. And when the film was released, the reaction was, as expected for a Martin Scorsese movie, rather rhapsodic. As was his talent, Roger Ebert would be able to nail the film right out of the gate, noting it was one of the most painful and wounded movies he had ever seen. Scorsese doesn't want laughs in the movie, he wrote, and he also doesn't want release. The whole movie is about the inability of the characters to get any kind of positive response to their bids for recognition. His review would finish with a blurb that acknowledged that the film was not fun, but it wasn't bad either. It is frustrating to watch, he would write, unpleasant to remember, and in its own way, quite effective. Ebert would also express that it was hard for him to believe this really was a Martin Scorsese movie. Many critics couldn't also help but acknowledge a direct connection 
between Rupert Pupkin and Travis Bickle. The great Pauline Kael didn't think it was much of a positive comparison, and she would also throw in another De Niro character from another Scorsese movie into Eviscerate, proclaiming that Pupkin was simply Jake LaMotta without the fists. The ending of the film, where Pupkin, the self-described king of comedy, steps onto a stage for his own television special, sharply divided the critics. Some would embrace the ambiguity of whether or not this was part of Pupkin's delusions or something that was really happening, while others would be angry at the thought of Pupkin getting everything he wanted after all of the trouble he caused. The King of Comedy would open on 14 screens nationwide during President's Day weekend, February 18th through 21st, 1983, including the Coronet in Midtown Manhattan and the Plaza in Westwood. And while the near $10,000 per screen average would normally be considered very good, it would pale in comparison to some of Scorsese's other first-wave large-market openings, as well as the single-screen opening for Bill Forsyth's Local Hero, which would open the same weekend to nearly two and a half times the business of The King of Comedy. The film would continue to play in the same 14 theaters for four weeks, when it expanded to 58 theaters in its fifth weekend, where it would gross $299,900. That would be the highest point in terms of ticket sales for the movie. The film would expand to 76 theaters in its seventh week of release, and then it would be a quick slide out of theaters. Fox would stop tracking the film after 12 weeks, with a final reported gross of $2.536 million. And while the soundtrack was pretty darn good, with tracks from the likes of The Pretenders, Talking Heads, Rick Ocasek from The Cars, B.B. King, Van Norrison, Ray Charles, and a track from the score by longtime Scorsese friend and collaborator Robbie Robertson, it would not set the Billboard music charts aflame. And like many an 80s film that disappointed during its initial theatrical release, The King of Comedy would slowly but surely find a receptive audience through VHS rentals and repeated screenings on cable television. Today, the film's effect on the motion picture industry are inarguable. Its tone and liberal mixing of reality and fantasy, to the point you don't know if what you're watching is real or imagined, can be seen in hundreds of movies since including, and especially in its unofficial 2019 remake, Todd Phillips' Joker, which features Joaquin Phoenix in his Oscar-winning role as the Rupert Pupkin stand-in Arthur Fleck, and Robert De Niro himself as the Jerry Langford stand-in Murray Franklin. Scorsese himself was attached to the film as a producer for a time, and the film features a climax once considered by Scorsese for the King of Comedy. Director J. Lee Thompson, whose 1962 movie Cape Fear would be remade by Scorsese several years later, would single the King of Comedy out as a masterpiece during an interview about the making of Scorsese's remake of his movie. And crime fiction novelist Donald E. Westlake would, after seeing the film opening weekend, give up writing a novel he had been working on for a time called The Comedy is Finished, because he felt his premise hewed too close to the plot of the movie. 
The book would eventually be completed after Westlake's death in 2008 by fellow novelist Max Allen Collins and be published in 2012. A number of book reviewers would unironically compare Westlake's plot lines to the King of Comedy. Scorsese would, in later years, express some regret for making The King of Comedy, but he would also state he thought it featured De Niro's best performance of all of their collaborations. It's definitely a hard film to quote-unquote love, but it's impossible to argue that it isn't effectively hitting in all of its beats. 38 years later, it's still one hell of a ride. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and produced by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.